Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. And uh, this month is National Poetry Month. A good time to have poets in the studio. My guests for the hour are poets Edward Hirsch and Michael Souter. Edward Hirsch is the celebrated author of nine books of poetry. He's also author of A Poet's Glossary, a complete compendium of poetry terms, and the author of the bestseller about poetry, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. He's received numerous awards and fellowships, including a MacArthur Fellowship, a Guggenheim Fellowship, and the Prix de Rome. He's an international advocate for poetry, serves as a chancellor of the Academy of American Poets. He taught creative writing at Wayne State University and University of Houston. He's now president of the John Guggenheim Memorial Foundation, which offers fellowships to those engaged in any field of knowledge and creation of the arts. Uh, Edward Hirsch, a pleasure to welcome you in. Thank you. It's nice to be here. Michael Souter joins us as well. He's a professor of English and affiliated professor of religious studies at Utah State University. Uh, themes of his poetry and writing include wilderness, fatherhood, poetetics, and Buddhism, yoga, and spirituality. Uh, he's a longtime meditation teacher, founder of the Amrita Sangha for in- Integral Spirituality, a nonprofit organization dedicated to exploring and teaching the wisdom of the world's contemplative traditions. He's author of several books of poetry and a uh, study of Walt Whitman's poetry titled Whitman's Ecstatic Union. Thanks for coming in. Thanks for having me on. Uh, Edward Hirsch will give a presentation this afternoon at 4.30 in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. This is a part of the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU College of Humanities and uh, Social Sciences. So, Edward Hurst, place I'd like to start. You're an advocate uh, for poetry. This is uh, National Poetry Month. Um, so, uh, why poetry? Why, why is poetry so important? Maybe I could frame this. Uh, you wrote a book, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. Yeah. Um, I thought people could use a little help. My my experience was that there were a lot of people who felt that there was something in poetry for them, but they had lost connection to it. Somehow, and along the way in their education, they had they had thought that they had discovered that they felt poetry was too hard for them, and they'd been turned away. And uh, I thought I could find a way to welcome people back into the tent. Mm. I mean, it can't just be news all the time. It it just can't be materialism all the time. And in American culture, there probably isn't a time when someone isn't trying to sell you something. Um, But I think we probably need some space where someone is not trying to sell us something where we want something else. And um, I think that poetry is a place to go to connect you both to other people and to your own inner life. And as long as we have an inner life, um, I think we're going to want ways to get access to it. And my experience is that poetry is one of the one of the methods of transport. Mm. You mentioned that some people have, uh, there's a block they can't get into it, uh, and uh, and therefore they give it up or they they, they, they don't pursue it. Uh, I'm thinking of a television commercial I saw once. Um, the, the, some people were looking at some screens, a couple of young men, and, and the voiceover was, why are foreign films so foreign? You know, that's, <laughs> and, and I think we've, we've all kind of been there, you know, the subtitles or whatever it is. Yeah. And and the different movie syntax kind of maybe you could apply that to poetry. It's uh, you know, but uh, I guess if you find a poet that you can respond to, or there's a way in. I, I, you know, I think that people have been prematurely turned away from something 
that they really would have much more access to than they realize, and it will give them a way to connect with themselves. And I just, I, you know, I'm an American. I believe in democracy. I think poems are for all people. And, 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 and I just think if we throw open the doors to the tent, people will find that actually there's something in poetry for them that they weren't always aware was there. Mm. Well, I have a question to you, uh, Michael mm-hmm. Souter. What yes. uh, do, do you find... Uh, obviously, some people find a barrier there. Other people respond by their way in more easily. Um, how to bring down those barriers, how, how to make poetry more accessible. Well, um, I was a lawyer for 10 years before I came back to poetry. And um, one of the things that I discovered in coming back to poetry and reading more contemporary poetry is that there's just a lot of contemporary poetry that's really accessible, that's not so difficult. You know, I mean, there's a lot of... Uh, poetry out of the canon, John Donne, John Milton, I mean, wonderful poets who I love, but they really take a lot of work to unpack what's happening in the poem. Um, but there are a lot of contemporary poets that uh, <clears throat> that uh, you can read the poem and you know what's going on. And I think poetry is just uh, so wonderful at capturing moments of human experience. I mean, some poems are narrative. And I remember when Mark Doty came here, he said he always needs uh, to start with a narrative, to get with these kind of luminous lyrical moments, which I feel like are kind of the heart of poetry. And so poem, a poem is really great for capturing uh, these important moments of human experience. Mm. And yeah. I, I just have to follow up. I didn't know that about you. Uh-huh, yeah. You, I was a lawyer. for. I wasted 10 years as a lawyer. <laughs> so before I law came to poetry, that's a journey. Yeah. Well, first I fell in love with poetry in college, and but I got married young and thought I should do something practical. So mm-hmm. I went to law school and, you know, I did well and I clerked for a federal judge and one thing led to another. And then I realized the error of my ways Okay. And came back. It became a poet. Yeah. yeah. Uh, perhaps less lucrative, but... Uh, Definitely. Poor, but happier. <laughs> yeah, poor, but happier, yeah. So, uh, Edward Hirsch, uh, I'd like to know a little bit of your biography. How, how early did you get into to poetry? And was, was it a direct path? I'm going to be a poet? Not really, although I, I started I, I started writing poetry when I was in high school, but the way almost everyone does, I had feelings I didn't understand. Um, and, I mean, it's very generous to call what I was writing poetry. I was just <laughs> writing things down, but... I felt better when I did it, and girls liked it. Um, uh, but when I went to college, I went to Grinnell College in Iowa, I started reading poetry. And when I re- started reading poetry, I, I just connected to it, and I thought, there's something here for me. Really, but I, I, I don't think it was an intellectual decision for me. It was I was sort of drowning I had feelings I didn't understand, and I saw an oar going by, and I grabbed on. Mm. And it turns out it was kind of emotional desperation. And I thought poetry would be a way to to find something for myself, and it turned out to be true. Mm-hmm. And then I fell in love with the actual poems I was reading, not so much with articulating my own feelings, and I was set on my path. Mm. What poets uh, did you respond to first? Well, the first poets I responded to were the English metaphysical poets because that's what my teachers all liked. And I liked the kind of... Uh, the wit and the complexity and the intellectual play in John Donne and Andrew Marvell and those poets of the English Renaissance. But they didn't, and so I sort of put myself to school on them. Um, it wasn't until I started to discover the romantic poets that I began to find my own sense of how much feeling poetry could hold. Mm-hmm. But first it was the English metaphysicals, then the romantics. Yeah. That's really good training. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, 
You said you were you, you thought you could find something that you needed. Did, did what was that? You know, I didn't. It's it's a strange thing about poems that um, it takes the words of another sometimes to give you access to your own inner life. I had a lot of feelings, as I think most of us do, that I didn't understand and I didn't know how to articulate. And when I began to read other people's poems, I sometimes found myself in them. And I found my own feelings being articulated in language of another. And it gave me access to understanding myself in ways I didn't understand. And um, that became slightly addictive. Hmm. Uh, could I have you read uh, some, some poems? Sure, my pleasure. Uh, let me, uh, this is your collection, The Living Fire, a new and, uh, and uh, selected poems. And it, it just so happened um, I especially responded to uh, three in a row here. So maybe we could do those now. Um, so it starts with Once in Helsinki. Once in Helsinki, I walked to the edge of town in blanketing snow. It was a whiteout, an epic storyteller without a story, with nothing to say about the onrushing cold and the blinding day. All I had to do was turn around and go home to my darkened room in the youth hostel, but I stood there mesmerized by the frozen light. Hell was sinking in. I was lo- alone in a world without a vision. Mm. So that's uh, that's an experience I guess any of us in snow country maybe have had a lot more going on there as well. Yeah, that well, I mean, really, it really took me to Helsinki as well. You're, but. You're, there's a joke in it that I liked. Hell was sinking in. I love that. It's, yeah. Right, uh, right. It was waiting yeah. for me. In right. that but, whole series, but, you have those yeah, kind of jokes. The, yeah. Every one of those um, stands is, is, a, is a haiku. Everyone is sort of stands by itself. But the experience it's describing is, I think, an experience that many of us had. Would you you leave the social world behind, you leave people behind, and you take a walk, and you're just taking a walk on the edge of the woods. This is basically the a Robert Frost poem, and then on the edge of the woods you're up against something, a kind of, in this case, a blanketing snow, but you can't see. But also, where are you in your life? You're kind of, you're at this crossroads, you're at this edge. And I couldn't see, so there's a kind of pun on, I was alone in a world without a vision, you literally can't see. But also, in a more spiritual sense, I didn't have a vision of where I was going or who I was, and you're sort of lost in this place. Mm -hmm. And that's what that poem, I think, tries to articulate. It takes a walk. You're with the speaker of the poem, taking a walk and left to the edge of the woods. But then it starts sinking in. Where are you in your life? Mm, right. In this poem, I'm just at the edge of something, memory, a memory of being lost. And you said earlier, as long as we have an interior life, then poetry will have a place. That's what I think. Yeah. Uh, I wonder if we could have you read the, just the very next uh, page, The Case Against Poetry. While you made the case against poetry, Plato's critique of the irrational, Homeric lying deluded citizens to a group of poets in Prague, night deepened in old windows, swallows gathered on a narrow ledge and called to the vanishing twilight, and a beggar began to sing in the street. Mm. I love that poem because it's, you know, it's the case against poetry and it's being undermined but the beautiful poetry, that's one level that you could... It, it comes out of a lec- I mean, this comes out of an experience I had where I was literally giving a, an, a, a, giving a lecture 
informal, but a lecture about the history of arguments against poetry. Yeah. And it began, it, as you know, it begins with Plato. Plato argued against the, against the poets, especially against Homer, because he thought that the poets encouraged the irrational, because Homer was so, Plato more than any other philosopher understood the meaning of poetry, the power of poetry, and he thought it was dangerous, because psychically dangerous, because it, it, it moved people so strongly, and that Homer moved people so strongly, but it wasn't exactly rational. So I was making this argument in the case against poetry, um, while poetry in the meantime, rationally against poetry, while in the meantime, poetry sneaking in. <laughs> and the kind of irrational experience that you have with poetry is actually taking place at that very moment. So I right. thought it was kind of funny. You're making an argument intellectually right. about how, what the intellectual arguments have been against poetry. But in the meantime, something moving and irrational is creeping in at dusk hmm. in, in Prague. Is that the main thrust of the arguments against poetry, rationality? The, the main argument is that it leads it, it, that it's not philosophically logical. I mean, there are many argu- there have been many arguments against poetry historically, but historically it came from Plato, and that he thought poetry was dangerous. And in a way, he was right. Hmm. Um, he understood the power of poetry because he himself was the great philosopher of transport. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of his writing is actually quite poetic. He himself is a kind of poet of philosophy. Mm-hmm. But his argument against it is that um, it doesn't lead necessarily to good behavior. Um, and it doesn't, it doesn't lead to necessarily well-rounded citizens because Plato's afraid of the unconscious. He's afraid of the irrational, whereas I think poetry welcomes the irrational and the unconscious as an important part of life. Mm-hmm. But yes, that's the, there's an ancient sort of battle between poetry and philosophy. And it's a, it's a way of knowing. And I'd say poetry is a different way of knowing than philosophy, mm-hmm. which comes to things logically, whereas poetry, I think, comes to things associatively. Mm-hmm. Right. And through feeling, I think, and intuition and That's things right. like that. Yeah. And uh, I think most of us say it's self-evident that uh, you know both are a part of life, right? But, but, but that, that associative thinking is very powerful, and it's a part of all of our lives. Uh, John Keats said, I don't understand how anything of consequence can be known by consecutive reasoning. Um, yes, we need consecutive reading, what he calls consecutive reasoning. We need logical thinking. We need philosophy. But we also need this other way of knowing, this more intuitive way of knowing, this more irrational way of knowing. And poetry is extremely good at tapping into that. Mm. And language itself is just full of metaphor. So, you know, put everything on the table, right? We just speak in metaphors all the time, which is what poetry is on one level. Mm. You've lived in both worlds, right? Yes, Uh, true. The the logical (coughs) side is a lawyer and uh, Mm -hmm. the associative side is as a poet. It's true. A lot of people say, well, did your, you know, 10 years as a lawyer, has that helped your writing or your poetry? I always say no. (laughs) (laughs) And I'm sure it did, you know, on one level. (coughs) But... um, but mostly I just, uh, as John Grisham said, I turned the light out in the office and never looked back. Right, right. Although some poems, yeah. you know, some poets are especially good at constructing an argument. Yes, true. Mm-hmm. And, and there are poems that are, you know, very well formed and very well shaped. And that's a kind of intellectual process and a mm-hmm. kind of intellectual pleasure and rigor. Mm-hmm. Not true, so different true. than making a case. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, true. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I wonder, uh, Edward Hirsch, if I could have you read the, the very first poem. Ian, it's, it's, it's short. It's the the very first poem in The Living Fire. The Beginning of Poetry Railroad tracks split the campus in half 
and at night you'd lie on your narrow cot and listen to the lonely whistle of a train crossing the prairie in the dark. I, I was trying to capture in that poem, I was really trying to find the first moment of poetry, what you felt. And it seemed to me that it was pre-linguistic. And so right there, I'm literally remembering being a freshman in college at Grinnell College in Iowa, in central Iowa, and listening to a train whistle. Mm. And that feeling, that loneliness that you sometimes hear at night when you're by yourself, the tremendous loneliness and desolation, that piercing cry, which still always moves me of a train whistle going through across a prairie, that origin and fe that feeling that I had, that seemed to me some unappeasable loneliness or desolation, that struck me as the origin of poetry for me mm. more than anything else. So I was trying to capture that in, a, in four lines, that moment. Yeah. This is also a new place for you, right? To, you go off to college. That's right. Raised in Chicago. That's right. I was in Chicago and I, I, went, I went to Grinnell College in Iowa and I really found poetry there yeah. and therefore found my vocation. Right. So, and I was just wildly transported by the excitement of it all. Mm. Um, but it was also lonely, and I, I've, I had some loneliness in myself that I didn't understand. And when I, when I read poetry, it gave me a way to start to articulate it. And you've, uh, I've noticed a theme that a lot of the of your poems are responding to new places. We just, we just, uh, you read a poem from uh, Helsinki, and uh, you've, you're well traveled, and th that can kind of give a person new vision, new. I think it's interior not, vision. Yes, I think it's not so much about travel, but about trying to find a way to locate a poem in the actual world. That that a, that a poem, especially if you are, are seeking some kind of visionary or luminous moment in the poem, it helps tremendously to have the poem located in an actual place. So what Doty was saying about narrative is also true about place, that you sort of have the poem located somewhere. So each of those poems, the poem in Prague, the poem in Helsinki, the poem in central Iowa, it's not so much about travel, but about being located in a, in a particular place so the reader is with you. And so the reader can move because you're going to go pretty far in a short amount of time. And so I think it helps the reader to be located and then can therefore travel with you. Mm. Interesting. Uh, let me have you read uh, another poem, and then uh, I'll uh, turn to Professor Souter if questions that you may have okay, uh, okay. at this point. Uh, <coughs> this is this is one I I very much responded to. It's called Branch Library. Made me think of myself as a as a <laughs> boy as well. I'm glad uh, because I'm trying know. in this poem to get back to the moment where you first discover yourself in poetry, and uh, you're in this case I'm moving back and forth between the the stacks where I'm reading and the tables where I'm writing. Branch Library. It all hinges on the pun of branch. Yeah, yes. Um, I wish I could find that skinny, long-beaked boy who perched in the branches of the old branch library. He spent the Sabbath flying between the wobbly stacks and the flimsy wooden tables on the second floor, pecking at nuts, nesting in broken spines, scratching notes under his own corner patch of sky. I'd give anything to find that birdie boy again, bursting out into the dusky blue afternoon with his satchel of scrawls and scribbles, radiating heat, singing with joy. Mm. Mm. 
that birdie boy. I love Yeah, love I think that there's line. a kind of loss or nostalgia in mm-hmm. the poem for something that you've lost. And you're trying to get back to that feeling, a purer feeling, a more innocent feeling that you had when you first started out. Mm-hmm. Something unworldly about it. Yeah. Michael Souter, what was, what was what was your experience? What was your first? Might might not have been a branch library, but uh, oh, first experience yeah, uh, with yeah. poetry. The poetry really or the reading, yeah. discovering that whole world. Oh, okay. Well, I really remember the moment when I was in high school. I think it was in tenth uh, grade, <clears throat> and I had this wonderful nun as a teacher, Sister Marion, uh, who I'm still friends with. And uh, anyway, she, um, like Edward was saying, she uh, she introduced me to the Romantics. And um, I remember reading Wordsworth's poem, uh, The World is Too Much With Us. And I just had this feeling, this is what I've always thought and believed. And I never articulated it myself. Mm. But here it is on this page. This is like who I am. And uh, so I was just, I just never got over that the way. It's a short poem. It's a sonnet, 14 lines. And so I just never got over the way you can have that kind of recognition um, in someone else's writing and someone else's voice. And the other thing that really struck me is that uh, it can happen in such a small space, you know. So like my wife, Jennifer Siner, is this incredible fiction reader, and she just breezes through all these novels. I'm a very slow reader, and I like savor every word. And um, so I just love the fact that poetry is this small container that can have such life-changing power. And uh, that's why I love it. Mm. That's interesting. Um, Edward Hirsch, how do you read? Are you? Uh, I would imagine a poet would, would be a very careful, uh, intense reader. I'm not sure. I, I like to read novels, too, and mm-hmm. sometimes you get lost in the story. Um, but when you're reading poetry, it's you really get lost in the world. Mm-hmm. I, 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 can, I, I have to watch it because I sometimes start daydreaming. Mm-hmm. Um, but there's a kind of concentration that you bring to reading poetry that um, – puts you in this in a special kind of state. Mm. Um, the Wordsworth poem you're talking about, the world is too much with us late and soon, getting and spending, we, we lay, lay waste, waste our, our powers. powers. I mean, he didn't even know about capitalism in America. <laughs> That's right. I mean, he has no idea about how much we're getting <laughs> and spending. Going. Exactly. <laughs> so I think poetry is a kind of release from that, a movement away from getting and spending, we lay waste our powers. And it takes you into this other kind of, contact i would say or act of attention that is another level another kind of time mm. so professor souter uh, any questions you might have on at this point and then uh, we'll take a break and then i want to get into um edward hirsch's uh, wonderful uh poem it's 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 a book length poem gabriel um writing about uh, the son that you lost right uh, that's edward right. hirsch um, well, I have, I guess, what is a somewhat of a shorter question, though it's it's not a small question. And then I have kind of a complicated, longer question that I'll save for after the break. But we've been talking about the interior life and how poetry gives us access to that interior life. And, and I uh, recently went to the AWP conference in uh, Tampa, Florida, and I was just struck at how much, um, how much writing today seems to be about politics and seems to be about you know, social justice and um, what's happening in the world, kind of like the external world. And um, I, I kind of had a feeling that that the this important part of poetry for me, which is this interior life, um, Thomas Merton, you know, the monkey said, our lives are really interior. And I just wonder if you have noticed that or if you feel like that this poetry of the interior life is um, being less privileged than it once was. 
I mean, we understand why people feel the need to resist right now. And I think that that American poets feel very called, very traumatized by the way many of us do Mm -hmm. by what's happening. And so it's not really surprising that American poets feel called to action. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that's part of what you're feeling. It's very much the case Mm -hmm. that poets are sort of being called forward as as citizens. Mm -hmm. And I I think that's crucial. I, I mean, I would say that because I came up uh, at the very moment that the Vietnam War was on, and everyone in American poetry was writing anti-war poetry. And I'm, I think that poetry is really useful, and I think it was really good to help stop the war. But when you read it now, you see that almost none of the poetry against the Vietnam War survives. It only mm-hmm. re- is read historically. The poetry that survived is the poetry by veterans that when veterans went to the war and came back and wrote poems out of their experience. All I'd say as a kind of cautionary about this is that you can't write poems by by watching CNN. (laughs) You're not Mm -hmm. gonna write poems in a kind of prepackaged language. And it's not that we shouldn't write poems of citizenship. It's not that we shouldn't be called to action. But as poets, we also protect the language. And you have to find a way to find a fresh language to do that. And yes, I think you're right at this moment, People are not so much called towards interior life because they feel so much mm-hmm. the call as citizens. Mm-hmm. I'm not sure in the long run that's going to be best for our poetry, but maybe it's necessary for our politics. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Uh, I mean, so before we go to break, I'm interested to have you briefly bring in Walt Whitman here. You've, oh. you've studied Whitman, yeah. and it occurs to me, you know, uh, themes of democracy and citizenship Very much so. uh-huh, uh-huh. in powerful language. Mm-hmm. Uh, would descri- would both describe Walt Whitman? Yes, Walt Whitman. You know, he said, "I'm vast. I contain multitudes," and he had so many different uh, identities and personas. Um, but uh, he did want to include everybody, and so his poetry is just all embracing. And uh, he also he also wrote a lot of uh, really strident political writing in his prose, which a lot of people are not familiar with. His his poetry is so warm and loving and embracing, but he's got a very harsh, strident voice in his prose. And um, but I think uh, he was trying to speak from the heart of democracy, this place where we are all connected like leaves of grass. You know, every leaf of grass is individual, but we also think of grass as, you know, all the leaves connected. And so this was his great symbol for democracy and which comes out of, you know, uh, love for each other and, um, you know, trying to find that place where we can move together, I guess. Well, let's take a break when we come back uh, more with uh, poets Edward Hirsch and uh, Michael Souter, and we'll get into talking about uh, this uh, poem by Edward Hirsch, uh, just extraordinary. It's called Gabriel. Let me, uh, let me read a review by Emily Rapp. This is on the back cover and uh, aptly describes the book, I think. Uh, uh, part tribute, part existential howl, part intellectual investigation of our most primal emotions, part novella-like, buoyant, Unsentimental romp through the life of Hirsch's wild spirit, beloved son. We'll get into talking about that uh, following the break. Let me just say before we go to break that Edward Hirsch will give a presentation on um, the USU campus today, 4.30 p.m. in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium that's free and open to the public. And this is a part of the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences. More following this. Okay. When you think of April, what comes to mind? April Fools? Bunnies? Baby animals? What about Earth Day? 
The first Earth Day happened on April 22, 1970. Almost 2,000 college campuses, 10,000 primary and secondary schools, and hundreds of communities celebrated the environment on that day through events and service projects. Though Earth Day was spurred by the Santa Barbara oil spill in 1969, it has since grown into one of the largest secular holidays on the planet. According to the Earth Day Network, over 193 countries participated in Earth Day last year. You can find more information about Earth Day events near you at earthday.org. This conservation conversation was brought to you by the Utah Conservation Corps, an AmeriCorps program based at Utah State University with the mission to develop the conservation leaders of tomorrow through service and education. Find out more at usu.edu backslash UCC. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU King College of the Arts presenting the Utah Symphony conducted by Kazuki Yamada and Alexandra Dariescu on piano Thursday, April 19th at 8 p.m. in the Danes Concert Hall. Ticket details at yearoftheartsusu.edu. Thanks for listening to Access U Time. Tom Williams, and we have with us uh, poets. <coughs> it's National uh, Poetry uh, Month, and uh, very appropriate. Also, we're uh, in front of a presentation that's going to be given. We're uh, talking with Edward Hirsch. He's the author of nine books of poetry, also author of A Poet's Glossary, a complete compendium of poetry terms, and author of the bestseller about poetry, How to Read a Poem and Fall in Love with Poetry. Michael Souter is with us in studio as well. He's a professor of English and an affiliated professor of religious studies at Utah State University, author of poetry collections and a study of Walt Whitman's poetry as well. Um, so Edward Hirsch is giving a presentation today, 4.30 p.m. in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. That's a part of the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences, and that is free and open to the public. You're welcome to join the conversation here. We'd love to uh, maybe hear your favorite poet or favorite poem, um, your question or comment, 800-826-1495, toll-free 800-826-1495, or maybe how you first discovered uh, poetry and uh, and reading uh, upraxcess at gmail.com is the place to email us upraxcess at gmail.com I still very vividly remember um, checking my first book out of the elementary school library and they had you put it in a plastic cover so I dutifully put it in the plastic cover clutched it to my chest and ran home and uh, it you know you, you just remember those moments yeah it's it's an introduction to an interior life and to and to this idea that uh, there's a whole world there's out there. There's another world. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, so I want to get into talking about, um, it refers to your extraordinary poem, published 2016, I think so. This is uh, recent. Uh, it's called Gabriel. Um, I Yesterday, in preparation for the program, I, I thought, well, I'll, I'll sit down and read a few poems. Then my practice is I usually get up early the morning of and, and do the rest of my prep. But it was in excess of an hour that I was still I was still riveted. This is, um, it's emotional. I mentioned it, I mentioned it was incredibly emotional for you to write it. Uh, tell us just a little bit in, in setup for this, whatever you'd like to in brief about about your son and, and, and how you came to write this poem. Um, I hadn't, I'd never really written very much about Gabriel. I'd sort of felt that your, your children are kind of off limits as a poet, not your parents. They kind of, ha- they're to blame. <laughs> they're responsible, so they have what's coming to them. But your child is sort of off limits, and we'd gone through a lot with Gabriel. 
But when Gabriel died so suddenly, um, I, I was completely bereft, and I became terrified that no one would remember him, that that he'd made such a little dent in the world, but he'd meant everything to me. And um, for a year, I didn't do anything, and I, I ended up writing a kind of document about Gabriel, kind of documenting his life. And then I began to try and make some poems and um, see what I could do. I'd really never known anyone like Gabriel, and, and so trying to get him down in poetry seemed like something that was interesting to do. And it it sort of gave me something to do with my grief by thinking about poetry, not just thinking about my loss. Hmm. I wonder if I could have you read it. It's on the back cover. Um, kind of gives you a sense of, all through the book, of course, he, you get a sense of Gabriel, the the person that, that he was. Um, so this... this uh, is just a, a, an excerpt. In his country, there were scenes of spectacular carnage. Hurricanes welcomed him. He adored typhoons and tornadoes, furies unleashed, houses lifted up and carried to the sea, uncontained, uncontainable. Unbolt the doors, fling open the gates. Here he comes, chaotic wind of the gods. He was trouble. But he was our trouble. He was our trouble. It's yeah. beautiful. Yeah. He was our trouble. Yeah. Um, you, you get a sense of the, you know, use the word hurricane. The, the book is, is many things. It's, um, it's a father's book. It's not written from Gabriel's point of view. It's, I'm not telling Gabriel's story from Gabriel's point of view. I couldn't do that. I'm telling it from my point of view. Um, but I'm also trying to capture what he was like and get a feeling for him. And I just inc- coincidentally or along to the side, I'd never seen anyone like Gabriel in a poem before mm-hmm. that a, a, a portrait of a kid like this. Um, and so that became part of my task to try and get as much about what Gabriel was actually like dramatizing what Gabriel was actually like as a person in a poem. And some of it is funny. Yeah. And those were the parts that gave me yeah. the greatest pleasure. And you include, I think you say verbatim or almost verbatim, uh, lines from a tribute from his friend, uh, Joseph. Yeah, his, um, towards the end of the, towards the end of the book, I basically take, um, Gabriel's closest friend, Joe, gave a eulogy at his, at his funeral and told the story of Gabriel's 22nd birthday and what they'd done that night. And my ex-wife and I were just stunned. We had no, we had no idea, Mm. Um, but it was wildly funny and interesting. And so when the time came in the poem, there are two sections that I basically, I had remembered it exactly, it turns out. Um, And I, it just basically gives you Joe's tribute, which is basically what it was like to be with Gabriel, which is what they did on their 20, on his 22nd birthday. Mm. Um, And then I, I showed it to Joe after I'd written it to see if that's how he remembered it. Um, and he made one correction, which is I had said, I remembered that he said Gabriel had a baby face. People believed him. And he said, well, actually what I said was Gabriel had a baby face. People wanted to believe him even when they knew he was lying. <laughs> so that was a more complicated, mm-hmm. right. interesting right. sentiment. Right. So anyway. I love the line, um, Let's see if I can find this in my, my notes here. Um, 
Let's see, I had it just a, a moment ago. Uh, there's, there's something about that. Oh, here it is. Um, the strategy for getting what you want when you want it is simple. Never take no for an answer. <laughs> that yeah. was Gabriel. As well. yeah, that's yeah. that's Gabriel. Like, yeah. A little troubling as a parent. Yeah. But, but, I but, have a son who has yeah, that strategy. Yeah, too. yeah. It's, it's it's funny but troubling. Yeah. And and scenes he'd uh, let's see you, you know you say you're standing in the line that DMV and Gabriel shows up. That's a yeah. that's a that's a bit of more that's a mourning. Mm-hmm. Then that that's a that moment in the poem is. It's all when I'm standing in line at the DMV and a stoner starts saying, he starts complaining about his parole officer. Um, and every one of those, in that particular poem, every one of those instances is someone or something reminding me of, reminding me of Gabriel. Mm. That's what that section is about. There's a, there's a, let's see, page 71. Let me get to this here. I think it would be a good place to bring this in. Uh, kind of along the, the same lines. Um, so this is from Gabriel, a poem, Edward Hirsch, page 71 here. And then all at once he was sitting across from us in a booth by the window in a crowded restaurant on Route 9, I think, maybe on 77th and Broadway. It was natural to see him staring at the menu and figuring out what to order oblivious to the jukebox and the din around us, his native habitat. Excitement overwhelmed me, and I stared at him so intensely, I almost lit up his face. Don't spook him, Laurie said. He doesn't know what's going to happen. We knew we had seen it all, but he was careless and didn't understand. You're my only son, I ventured, but I couldn't tell if he heard me over the music. It was so familiar to see him sitting across from me again in the early morning light. It was as simple as daylight dawning between us. I could still speak to him. Mm. This is a dream. Yeah. This is at this point in the poem, Gabriel had already died, <clears throat> and I had a dream in which we're sitting in the booth together, talking just naturally the way you do, sitting across from each other. Um, except it was no longer possible. Yeah. We do have an email, and you're uh, you're able to email the program at upraxcess at gmail.com, upraxcess at gmail.com. You can call as well, 800-826-1495, 800-826-1495. We have the poet Edward Hirsch uh, with us. We also have uh, Michael Souter uh, from the USU English Department uh, with us. And uh, so this is from Jennifer Seiner. Thank you, Jennifer, for the question. Um, she says, <laughs> Thank you, Jennifer. I, I recently read Gabriel and was transported by its beauty and its pain. Every line quivered on the page. It is a true testament to your shining sun. She spells it S-U-N. Uh, yes, son. As a memoirist, I often finds my, find myself writing about my sons. It is the most fraught writing I do because I'm not always sure where their being my son ends and their own strong self begins. Is it their story or mine? I wondered if you wrote about Gabriel in your earlier poetry and how you think about where your experience slash embrace ends and another's begins. Thank you for that beautiful question, Jennifer. Um, sounds like we're worrying a lot of the same things. Um I had written very little about Gabriel because I just thought it was so fraught and there was so much about Gabriel that he didn't want people to know. And one of the struggles I had after he died was there were a lot of things that Gabriel didn't want known about himself. For example, his tics or all the medications he took. 
But I decided that if I was going to tell a story from my point of view, I just had to include those things. Um, and I, I tried to be very clear that this is my story of Gabriel. It's not my wife's story about Gabriel. It's not Gabriel's story of himself, which would have been different. And I think that's the best you can do as you're trying to capture him and say what he was like, um, but also granting him that his own integrity, his own story, and that you're aware that the story you're telling is it's true for you and you're doing the best you can to tell it, but it's not the story he'd tell about himself. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, that's the best I could do as a father. Yeah. He had epilepsy. He did. Right. Um, and there, there was a very poignant uh, passage in the book, just a line where you, you said he, at a certain point he stopped taking the drugs yeah. to, 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 I guess, uh, he didn't like the way they made him feel. It clouded his mind. He felt. That's right. Yeah. He, he, he give, he gave himself drug holidays. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so this might be a good t- time to bring this in. This this page really struck me, uh, page thirty three. You're you're working through kind of this this problem that Jennifer Siner talks about of what to include, what not to include, and and how writing about him this, some of the problems. This is the answer to to the question. Really, mm-hmm. this is mm-hmm. this is about my my fear of what I'm doing. From the storybook of bluster and bad judgment, from the annals of loneliness, from the history of kids he met on the street in special programs, it was dangerous to stay in Amherst. Lord of misadventure, I'm scared of rounding him up and turning him into a story. God of scribbles and erasures, I hope he shines through like a Giacometti portrait. I keep keep scraping the canvas and painting him over again, but he keeps slipping away. He was like a spider preyed on by other spiders and older insects. Sweet venom, his arrivals were swift and his departure sudden. I couldn't understand how he lifted the shower door right off its hinges. When Gabriel cooked, the flames rose too high and the fire alarm sounded. When the fire alarm sounded, he tore it off the wall and left the wires dangling. And yet I just feel like even though there's always that worry, uh, that concern of rounding him up and turning him into a story, um, you know, now we have this book, this tribute and homage to him, and we all get to know him. Well, thank you. But you're just that moment is a recognition that I'm making a story and I'm afraid of it because he's a person. Mm -hmm. He's not just the opportunity for me to write a poem Mm -hmm, and that I'm trying to get him right, but he keeps slipping away because I can't quite get it. Mm -hmm. And it's kind of an acknowledgement of my impotence really to Mm -hmm. fully capture what he was like Mm -hmm. um, and just hope he keeps shining through. I was thinking of those Giacometti portraits where he keeps drawing over the portraits, the lines keep aggressively going again. I go, that's how I felt. I keep trying again and again to get what this, to get Mm -hmm. down what he was like as a Mm -hmm. person. And then I sort of throw my hands up and give these examples. Mm-hmm. Like how does your how does he tear the shower door? Take off the shower door. <laughs> how does he take it off its right. hinges? I really don't even understand that. Um, and sets and then, off the fire and alarm, he, and so he, takes, he takes off the alarm. Yeah, he takes, instead dangling. of turning off the alarm, he takes the whole alarm off. I mean, that's what you're. I just yeah. left left with these examples uh-huh. of what he was like. And, and that image uh, that you give that you just mentioned is just so unforgettable. I keep scraping the canvas and painting him over again, but he keeps slipping away. It's just fantastic. I mean, that's what Jennifer's asking about. 
about. You just keep, the person just keeps eluding you, but you're desperate to try and get it down. And that's your sort of, that's your task. That's yeah. your job to try and get it down. But you're aware that you're making a poem and there's a person there. Mm. And the person is not the poem. Yeah. Mm. And the, you, you've said a couple of times, this was a father's poem, right? It's that's not, right. It's not the story he would have written. It's 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 you. It's not even the story that I would have written or that I would have chosen to write. Mm-hmm. Honestly, I was forced to write this in mm-hmm. some. I mean, I I did it, but mm-hmm. um, it was never anything I ever intended or planned mm-hmm. to. And I wasn't even intending never write about Gabriel very much. I was just left mm-hmm. with, and and I just felt I had to I had, I had I had to try to do something. What does the what does this process do do for you? Is it cathartic in any way? It's I mean there there there's some passages in the poem where, where, where you know the the grief is just blank it's it's, it's overwhelming those it's, final pages yeah, yeah. It, it's very inconsolable and I, I should say that at one time i was a total believer in poetry in a way that i'm not now that this this was a cautionary experience and a shocking experience to me i mean i do believe poetry does some things better than almost anyone el- anything else does um but i mean at the end of the poem is the recognition it won't give me my son back. Mm-hmm. And that I think poetry does something at capturing him better than other things can, but it won't bring him back. Mm-hmm. Um, it helped me with my grief, but it didn't give him back to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, Professor Souter. Oh, thanks. Question. Um, so this poem, I mean, sorry, this, this uh, question or observation really has to do with all your poetry, but I think it has special resonance in Gabriel. And it's kind of complicated, so I'll try to be kind of brief. But um, sometimes, you know, when I'm reading the poems, I feel like that the poems are carrying on uh, kind of an ancient Jewish tradition of arguing with God. Absolutely. Uh huh. And then, and then, in a lot of poems, <clears throat> they they seem to outright deny the existence of God. And um, like in the reader, um, you know, it, it's about something is is waiting for this protagonist is looking for him, and at the end, it says. Uh, he did not listen to it crying out softly in the trees like a prophecy, though it waited for him nonetheless, a patient and faithful oblivion and emptiness, which he would not call God. And um, so, uh, but then I started thinking that maybe, that maybe the poetry is really, um, is really kind of voicing a kind of um, apophatic mysticism and, th- and this idea that it's not that God is absent so much as that God eludes or transcends all of our names and concepts and ideas about God. And that, and I just, I just wondered uh, if you could speak to that a little bit and, and then also maybe um, whether Gabriel uh, continued that or changed it in any way. I have this poem called A Partial History of My Stupidity. And the last lines are, I did not believe in God who eluded me. And so you're saying on the one hand, I don't believe in God, but the other, the suggestion is that God is there, but he, but God eludes you. Mm-hmm. And so I, I I think this is an ancient quarrel um, I, in which I keep saying I, I can't believe in God, but I can't give up the idea of God mm-hmm. either. And I keep arguing with, with a God that I keep saying doesn't exist. Yeah. Um, I said this to a friend of mine who's a rabbi, and she said, yes, that's a very Jewish position. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I felt like in reading the poems that, that this nothingness or this emptiness or this absence had kept appearing and appearing and appearing so that it started to feel to me like a presence. That, I think that's the, that's the idea. I can't give it up. But Gabriel's kind of the test case. 
I, I can't believe in a comforting or consoling God either. Mm -hmm. There's a kind of, at the end of this poem, there's a tremendous rage mm -hmm. against God, which keeps saying, I don't believe you, I don't believe mm -hmm. in you, and I'm enraged with you. Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, um, I, I, yeah. I can't, I mean, I, I think faith is a great gift. I don't have it. Mm -hmm. um, I, I, the idea that there's a comforting God um, is just not true to my experience. Mm -hmm. That there's a God who ensures that everything happens for the best is just mm -hmm. not something I can, I can believe, and it's just not true to my experience. But the loss of the idea of any transcendental power of anything beyond us is almost too much to bear, mm -hmm. and so I keep returning to this kind of metaphysical mm -hmm. question, which is deeply felt. It's not a not an intellectual argument, but mm -hmm. something that I keep returning to. And and Gabriel, I guess, becomes the test case of this. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. You have a wonderful line in Idea of the Holy that says, a God, compre a God comprehended is no God. Mm -hmm. That's the idea that the notion of God is something beyond us, and I keep returning to it. Mm -hmm. But also, you're also left with what you yourself can comprehend. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I want to uh, just have uh, about three minutes left in the program. I want to make sure we get this in. This is a very powerful uh, page here. Uh, this is page 73. Are you your own experience of grief and that expanded out to... All, all the time I was writing, Gabriel, I was trying to find a way that I was thinking to, to suggest that, that I'm not the only one that this has ever happened to. And I was looking for a term for grief that was not just mine. And that's what this tries to do. It tries to enlarge my sense of grief, that it's not just me that this has happened to. It's about mourning. I did not know the work of mourning is like carrying a bag of cement up a mountain at night. The mountaintop is not in sight because there is no mountaintop. Poor Sisyphus grief. I did not know I would struggle through a ragged underbrush without an upward path because there is no path. There's only a blunt rock with a river to fall into, and time with its medieval chambers, time with its jagged edges and blunt instruments. I did not know the work of mourning is a labor in the dark we carry inside ourselves, though sometimes when I sleep, I'm with him again, and then I wake. Poor Sisyphus grief, I am not ready for your heaviness cemented to my body. Look closely and you will see almost everyone carrying bags of cement on their shoulders. That's why it takes courage to get out of bed in the morning and climb into the day. Mm. You're reaching out to your, there are other people going through this. and It turns out everyone is going through yeah, it. Yeah. Um, not this, not your exact thing, but everyone gets to be a certain age, and sometimes even before they get to be a certain age, and they're carrying around a huge grief. And my experience is, it's if you don't see it, it's only because you don't know them very well. Mm. And so I'm trying to reach out and articulate that and recognize that people are going through their ordinary lives, um, but they're often carrying this invisible weight, yeah. which has to do with a tremendous inner grief over something they've lost. And this can this connection through through poetry through reading can can be powerful, right? Uh, That's what you, you hope is the great gift of poetry. You you quote um, in this poem uh, Rukert. I think you're quoting him. He says, uh, and, and he's 
the poet on whom Mahler based his, and you and you you uh, mentioned that about the songs on the death of children. That's right. Um, Rukert says now the sun wants to rise so brightly as if nothing terrible had happened overnight. The tragedy happened to me alone. That, That's that was right. The Everyone feels the feeling yeah. that this happened to them alone, mm-hmm. and you. But they're all walking around with it, mm-hmm. and the there there are moments in Gabriel. I'm just trying to recognize that other people are carrying around this grief. I'm not the only one. This has happened to. Yeah. Well, much I wanted to get into uh, all of the uh, figures that you do reference, like Mahler and and uh, other poets. There's one. Uh, there's one poet that you reference that she lost what 13 children. It's unbearable. Just unbearable, and 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 her, her writing reflects that. It's just so that section incredible. quotes her. Is most of that section is a, is a paraphrase of one of her poems. Yeah. Um, you know, when I was looking for other examples or models, I started calling on all the other poets who'd lost children as my people, basically. Mm-hmm. And there's a kind of sub-motif in the poem of poets as fathers and poets who've lost children. It could cry, I think that creates a kind of chorus in the book, that it's not just this one story, but this story resonates amongst a larger community. Yeah. Well, we're out of time. We'll have to leave it there. Uh, We've had with us in studio, great pleasure, Edward Hirsch, author of Nine Books of Poetry, other books as well. And uh, he will be giving a presentation on the USU campus today, 4.30 p.m. in the Eccles Conference Center Auditorium on the USU campus. That is part of the Tanner Talk series presented by the USU College of Humanities and Social Sciences that is free and open to the public. Edward Hirsch, uh, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you for having me. Michael Souter, professor of English at USU, has been with us as well. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And thanks for listening to Access Utah. This week in This American Life, Eileen had to make a choice. Actually, she had to make the choice that is the hardest possible choice a mom could ever have to make. You just try to think, okay, is this my only choice? What could be the worst that could happen? Could it be any worse than what you're living right now? Choosing between two bad options when no good options exist. That's this week. Join us Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State University and the College of Humanities and Social Sciences. Heard on KUSR Logan, KUSK Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSUFM Logan. Also heard online at upr.org.